All right. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. For those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Brandon Hurth, one of the pastors here, the associate pastor. This is my first time preaching in a circle, and I am a crazy pacer as it is. So if I start just like flying around this donut here like a NASCAR driver, someone stop me, please. (laughs) Revelation chapter 12. If you're new to Crossroads, new to your Bible, Revelation is the last book. So turn to the end, start turning to the left, and you'll hit chapter 12. And if you are new, woo, did you pick an interesting week to come? (laughs) You'll know more when we start reading in a minute. Uh, Two weeks ago, Rod talked about Revelation 6 through 11. And really, that was one big section talking about the trumpets and the seals and God's judgment. And now here we come to another section, Revelation 12 and 13, where we really get introduced to the adversary. And we're going to slow up just a little bit. So here at Crossroads, we like to stand for the reading of God's Word. So if you're willing, if you're able, out of respect, because we truly believe these are the words of the God who created this universe, we'd like to stand and keep that in mind, that these are God's words as we start to read about the woman and the dragon. Yeah, spoiler, there's a dragon. Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled to the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Oddly specific. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, sweet. Glad we got that out of the way. We all understand it. See you next week. (laughs) Only kidding. This is a passage I kind of joked at the beginning saying uh, that if you're new to Christianity, this is quite the passage. But really, I want you to know that whether you're new to Christianity, checking it out, been a Christian for the last 40 years, this is a great passage today. It's peculiar, but it's terrific. So as we look at it, this could kind of be arranged into three segments. We didn't read them all now, but we'll read them. The first is the dragon's battle to stop the Messiah. That's what we read, verses 1 through 9. The second being the dragon's battle to stop us. That's 10 through 12. And finally, the dragon's battle just to mess up as much as he can. And that's really verses 13 through the end of the chapter. The first two are epic failures for the dragon. The third is going, all right, he's wreaking some destruction. He's having some success, but we also know that it's limited. So here we have... An epic battle going on. This massive adversary that's being introduced. And let's take a look at who these characters are. What's going on here? 
Before we get too far, I feel like I just need to pop the bubble, though, for some of us in this room. I don't want to do it, but I have to. We've said from the start that this is Revelation, and it's apocalyptic literature, which is really a big word, meaning that God is speaking through visions and signs more than his word. He's, he's painting a scene through John and what he's showing him. He's not giving us a literal look exactly at what it will be. So similar into the way that when you read poetry, you read it different than a math textbook, right? Here we read Revelation, and we know that God is functioning more as an artist than a newscaster, Okay, he's functioning more as an artist, painting a picture, giving us a vision, artistically expressing real truths, not just a newscaster giving us kind of like a video recording of exactly what happens. Okay, this isn't like Dr. Seuss, where you read it. I'm sorry, this is real facts, though. This isn't like Dr. Seuss, where we read it, and there is no Whoville, and there is no Grinch stuffing Christmas trees up chimneys and things like that. That has a nice little moral fable at the end, but this isn't just a moral fable. This is real events that took place, but they're depicted in a very artistic fashion. In the same way that if you hear me say, my father was a mountain of a man with tree trunks for legs and hands of stone from years of construction, I hope that none of you are picturing a man literally shaped like the mountains and with actual tree trunks for legs and hands of real stone. You know what I'm saying, right? I'm using artistic language, but I'm expressing a real truth. The real truth being, my dad was big. He was a strong man, did construction a lot of years. God does that too. He tells us when things are going well that the hills danced and the trees clapped their hands. Or when things are going poorly, he says that stars are falling to earth. What he's saying is that all creation celebrates or all creation groans. So we come to the saddest part of the sermon right here, the band-aid I've just got to rip off. I'm sorry to do it, but the Bible isn't claiming that Harry Potter-like dragons are real, okay? It's just not. I'm sorry. Back to the muggle world, we all topple. We know this though, right? Look at verse 3 with me. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars to the sky from the sky and flung them to earth. Astrologers estimate that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of a billion trillion stars in the observable universe. That's how many we can see. Rough estimate. A billion trillion. The Bible is not saying that a third of a billion trillion stars are going to come crashing into our earth. Okay, even one star would utterly consume us, burn us to a crisp, right? What he's doing is he's speaking poetically. He's speaking artistically, but he's speaking about very real truths. These symbols all stand for something. So let's take a look at what these are. What do these symbols mean? Let's start with the dragon. Why else, right? Where else could we start other than this massive dragon. This passage, like I said, it's a new section in Revelation. Chapter 12 and chapter 13 introduces what scholars call the satanic trinity. The satanic trinity. We have a trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we believe in, the Godhead. And here we see an evil ripoff of it. We have in our passage the dragon. Chapter 13, we'll talk about it next week, but we see his two partners, the beast of the sea. 
this beast that comes up out of the ocean that has a mortal wound that somehow has been healed or resurrected. Seems very similar to our second member of the Trinity that's also been uh, resurrected. And then we have the beast of the land that comes up, and the beast of the land's job is just to point to the beast of the sea and glorify that beast and point people to it, which is very similar to the Holy Spirit constantly pointing us back to Christ. But you'll have to come back next week to hear a little bit more about those two beasts. We have our own dragon to tame today. It's a little pun for you guys. Trying to keep it a little punny in here. Some of you guys are cringing. Some of you guys are smirking a little bit. The hatred for puns, I just don't get it, you know? (laughs) Actually, I really do, but... So, here we go. What's the dragon? Who is it? Verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. I love when the Bible is just like, here's what this means. It's the devil. That ancient serpent, he goes by a ton of different names, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, the father of all lies, and so on. But John starts with one specific one, that ancient serpent. If we know our Bibles, this is taking us all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 3. You guys remember back with me here. We have Adam and Eve. They're created. Everything is perfect. Everything is going great in the garden. And then enter this serpent, who comes in and with just a few words wreaks utter chaos into all of creation. But now he's back and he's even bigger and he's even scarier. He's being depicted as a dragon. He has seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. This is an imitation of a few weeks ago we talked about the lamb who had seven eyes and seven crowns representing perfect vision and perfect authority. And here we see the evil knockoff. We'll talk about what each one of these heads and these horns means in a few weeks. If you just can't wait, Revelation 17 gives you a little better idea. But I want to focus on one thing today. For our purposes, just focus on the fact that we have an imposter. Powerful, no doubt. He works through kingdoms on this earth. In fact, John 12 says that he's the prince of this world. Ephesians 2.2 says he's the ruler of the kingdoms of the air 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls him the God of this age. He's a beast of massive power, massive authority, no doubt. That's why he's depicted as this terrifying dragon. But I also want you to see that in this passage, it's very clear that it's only a temporary reign that this big beast has. He possesses sovereignty only over his own followers. His defeat at the cross was final. Verse 12 says he knows his time is short. I want to pause for a second. I just want that to sink in. Satan is a scary adversary, no doubt. But I want you to also see that while he has power, it's only for a temporary time. That as our passage today shows you, he's already been defeated. He's been hurled down. His time is short. I don't know what you're going through today. And I don't want to minimize pain. I don't want to minimize suffering. I don't want to minimize persecution or evil. But I want you to know that as we study this Revelation series, this was written to a group that were persecuted, experiencing immense evil. And the Bible doesn't minimize the pain of it. 
But it also always puts it in the context that Satan's reign, evil's reign, pain's reign, suffering's reign is temporary. Its time is short. But first, before we get to all of that, we'll talk more about it in a minute. Let's look at what the dragon's trying to do. He's trying to stop the woman, which makes total sense if we know what the woman represents. So what do we know about this nameless woman? Look with me at verse 1. Then a great sign appeared in heaven. Note even the language here. The woman is the great sign. The dragon is just another sign. This woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Skip down to verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. That last part's a quote from Psalm 2 about the Messiah that is to come. So we know that this is the mother of the Messiah, but before we jump to Mary, she's deeper than that. She means more than just that. Look back with me a little bit here. When I read this, I was immediately taken back again to Genesis 3. I think John has it at the front of his mind. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything's perfect, right? But then they mess it up with their sin. But before the curse is ever given, so important, this just blows me away. Before the punishment is ever handed down for sin, before the man receives the curse, the woman, the earth, before any of that, we have a promise made by God. Genesis 3.15, the most beautiful passages. It says, God making a promise here that there's going to be one to come, the seed of woman, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent. Stomp it underneath his feet. His heel will be bruised, but he will stomp out evil. This is our hope. In our passage, we see a nameless woman giving birth to the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And Satan is doing everything in his power to try to stop it from taking place. He's waiting to devour the child right as soon as it's born. This is a personification of something that happened all throughout history. This is the greatest promise of the Bible, and it's played out over kingdoms and nations on a global stage throughout history. In fact, if you tug at this string, you'll see it just unravel all throughout the pages of your Bible. This book... 66 books, but it's one book. It's one story, and there's big themes that run all throughout it, and this right here is one of the big ones. You see, Satan was there for the prophecy. He heard. He knows that there's one who's going to crush his head, but do you think he just lays there and waits for the crushing? No. He fights with everything that he has to try to stop this seed before it's ever even born to stop this Messiah before he's ever born. It's a major theme throughout all of Scripture. Talked about Genesis 3, immediately after they leave the garden. Adam and Eve are kicked out. Eve conceives. She gives birth to a son. She conceives again. She gives birth to another son. And we're thinking, like, maybe this is the seed. There's only one woman here, right? Maybe this is the seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And Satan takes them both out. He gets one brother to murder another brother, Cain and Abel. And in so doing, he wipes out both of them. 
And it seems like all hope is lost, but God provides another seed, Seth, through his line, where we're going to get the Messiah. Fast forward a little bit. Exodus, Pharaoh, he's killing all the male children, trying to take out the seed. Esther, we have national genocide where they're trying to wipe out all of the Israelites through whom the Messiah will come. Herod, Jesus is born and he tries to take out the seed, kill all the young boys in Israel. Even after Jesus is born, it doesn't stop. We have the temptation of Jesus, which is really Satan trying to take out the seed. We have the crowds trying to throw Satan off of the cliff. And then ultimately it climaxes with the crucifixion, trying to take out the seed. Behind every one of these events is the red dragon. Hear me today. The devil has been trying to take out Christ far more than he's ever been trying to take out any of us. And yet Christ was perfect, spotless, and God's plan couldn't be thwarted. In fact, John doesn't even need to go into detail about any of the life or ministry or death of Jesus in our passage. He just talks about the ascension because he just wants you to see the victory. Satan couldn't stop the seed. I don't know what kind of temptation or struggle you guys are experiencing, but I want you to know that you serve a God who can sympathize. He knows what it's like to be tested. He knows what it's like to be pursued. He knows what it's like to have to fight against evil. He knows what it's like to be under attack yet he perfectly overcame. And in a minute, we're going to lay out how we can overcome as well. Our passage talks about it. As a hint, it's not through try harder. It's not through be better. It's not through fight more. We only overcome when we look to the Lamb and we share in his victory. So Satan might be a big scary dragon in this, but he was utterly powerless to stop God's plan. The woman, she's more than just Genesis 3. She represents the people of God throughout time here. The nation of Israel that's going to give birth to the Messiah. Look again at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out as she was about to give birth. In Jewish literature, 12 stars represents the 12 tribes. The 12 sons of Israel Remember even Joseph's dream when he dreams that there's 11 stars representing his brothers and sisters bowing down to his one star, 12 stars. In fact, all throughout Scripture too, we also see Zion, Jerusalem, the people of God represented as a woman in pains of labor as they're trying to give birth to the Messiah. This woman represents the people of God. And yet notice how she's described She's described as radiance, with the brilliance of the sun and the moon under her feet, which signifies this great victory, great glory that God has given to his people. And for me, that just gives me so much encouragement. Because the nation of Israel failed miserably and made tons of mistakes. And yet, look at the way that God has glorified them and redeemed them and made them victorious. God gives them the victory. It's even seen in that oddly specific 1260. You guys remember that? 1260 days. What? Only kidding. I I definitely was tripped up a little bit at first, though, by this. I started reading through it, and you find this actually all throughout Revelation. 1260 means 42, 42 months. 
It means a time, times, and half a times later on in our passage in verse 14. It's all saying the same thing. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. And it meant something to John's audience. They would have known what three and a half years was in the same way that we all know what 9-11 is. Or 1776. These are dates. These are timelines. These are events that mean something to us. And back then, they knew 1260. My old seminary professor, D.A. Carson, links this directly back to a famous historic event that everyone in Jesus' time would have known. In fact, about 150 years prior to this, uh, it took place. It was a rebellion that it's, I'm told it's still studied at West Point today as an example of guerrilla warfare. It's a very proud time in the Jewish people, people's history. Alexander the Great had died a while back, and he had left his kingdom to four different people and split it up and divided it. And as history kind of unfolded, we finally get to this guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. And he ended up in control over the nation of Israel. That was part of his territory, and he sought to wipe out, to exterminate the Jewish people. He tried to do it through forced, kind of the Greco-Roman way, through forced assimilation, He destroyed every copy of the Hebrew scriptures he could find, burned them. If you were caught with a portion of the Torah, you were slaughtered. In fact, it was a capital offense to observe the Sabbath. It was a capital offense to observe circumcision. Everything he was doing was trying to wipe out the the Jewish religion, wipe out the seed that the Messiah would come from. In fact, he went so far as to slaughter a pig on the altar in, temp- in the temple in Jerusalem to Zeus. Eventually, some Jews had enough of this persecution, and they formed a revolt. And from 167 to 164 BC, a period of roughly three and a half years, 42 months, 1260 days, we have what's called the Maccabean Revolt. It's led by a man named Judas the Hammer. What a sweet nickname, right? Really, that's where the name comes from, too. They were the Hasmoneans, but we call them the Maccabees from the Hebrew word for hammer. And this right here was a proud time for Jews, a time that brought freedom from their oppressors, independence, safety, security as a result of this. It represents a time of great fighting but ultimate victory. And this theme runs all throughout our passage today. Let's look at this triumph now. Okay, the second section that we didn't read here yet, but verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. This section right here makes me want to just dance up here. That's all you get, though. I'm serious, though. This passage right here is referencing one of my favorite sections in the entire Bible. If you were checking out at all during the message, this would be a great time to check back in. You see throughout Scripture, 
Anytime Satan opens his mouth, it seems like it's to contradict exactly what God has just said. Genesis 3, God says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you'll certainly die. Don't do it. And Satan comes in and he says, surely you won't die. Fast forward a little bit. Job, God says that Job is righteous and won't deny him. Satan says, yes, he will if you do this. He does it and it doesn't happen. He comes back a second time, contradicts God a second time and goes through the same thing. Matthew 4 Dan Mike and Aaron Goodrich really helped me to see this one this week. But at Jesus' baptism, you hear the voice from heaven. You hear God saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then immediately, Jesus goes off into the desert to be tempted. And what does Satan say to him? If you really are God's son. In other words, I don't really believe it. You need to prove it. It's not really true. If you really are God's son, turn this stone into bread. If you really are God's son, throw yourself down from here. He's trying to get Jesus to question his identity as God's son. You see the underhanded approach that he takes. Every time Satan opens up his slimy mouth, it's to contradict what God says or cause someone to doubt the truth of God's statements. Yet every time we see over and over again, it's proved that God was right and Satan indeed is the father of all lies. See, Satan is the great deceiver and he's the great accuser. Turn with me to Zechariah 3. This is the passage that I was just so geeked to read. I know some of you guys will know this one, but even if you've heard it a hundred times, I'm telling you there's still so much in it. Zechariah chapter 3. I'll give you a minute. I hear those pages turning. See some fingers swiping. This was a couple months ago. I'd be worried you were playing Pokemon Go. (laughs) I told the first service, though, there's a Harry Potter Go apparently coming out. So for all the fans that I angered earlier, there's a little thing to get excited for. I'm not allowed to have games. This is just random, but I'm not allowed to have games on my phone. It's really bad for my marriage, I've found. And so... (laughs) I have not played any of those, and I probably will not, um, or I will be sleeping on the couch. All right, Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, I'm sorry, the Lord, yeah, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Pause real quick. Do you see like the courtroom drama going on? On one side, we have the accuser right here, the prosecutor. And on the other side, we have the defendant, the high priest, the man who would have been seen as the holiest man in the entire nation of Israel. This guy would be dressed in the priestly clothes. I was thinking about trying to dress that way for real, but Woodland Mall did not have anything that would at all suit the priestly garments. But let's just say they're beautiful, fine linen, ephod, a breastplate. If you want to know more about what they are, Will, I see him sitting over there. He preached an amazing sermon, his first sermon at Crossroads, the entire thing just on the clothes that the priest wore. So if you want to know more, just know that it is a huge, they're beautiful. They're spectacular clothes. And this guy would be perceived for our purposes as the holiest man in the holiest nation, 
on the holiest day of the year, in the holiest place, in the holiest clothes. He would have been purified. He would have been ceremonially clean. And yet we read in verse 3, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Although his clothes would have been physically clean, spiritually they were stained and marred by the effects of sin. This is what sin does to us. It corrupts. It stains. It soils us. Even the holiest man in Israel is not exempt from the effects of sin. Joshua here, he's all of us. He's the best of us. And even he, as high priest, is stained too. Each one of us have made mistakes. Each one of us have done things against God, against conscience. Each one of us wears a shirt today with stains on it. Some of us may have more stains than others, but God doesn't grade on a curve. We're all stained. We know this, right? Instinctively, we know this about sin. Even psychologically, we know this. When we sin, we feel dirty. We feel unacceptable. We feel like kind of this fear of even being seen afterwards. Even animals get this. You come home and your dog has just chewed on something it knows it is not supposed to have chewed on. Where do you find it? Hiding. Sin just causes it inside of us. This feeling of dirtiness, this feeling of being unacceptable goes all the way back to the first sin in the garden. Adam and Eve afterwards are just hiding. Am I the only one that's ever felt this? Felt that kind of dirt, that kind of like, get away from me. I don't want people to see me. I'm, I'm, I'm sick of hurting people. But watch carefully at God's response. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. If you've been here for a while, you know any time in the Old Testament that we read about the angel of the Lord, Rod's always saying this is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus Here again, we see that angel. We see Christ standing in the defendant's box right there with the high priest. He's in the box with him, dressed in pure, dazzling white, having been tempted in every way and yet perfect and without sin. And what does Jesus do? He takes off his clothes, his perfect, pure, unwrinkled, unspoiled garment, and he has him put it on the high priest. Jesus exchanges his perfect record, his unstained, unblemished record for the high priest's soiled one. The Bible puts it like this elsewhere. He made him who knew no sin, who had never sinned, to become sin so that we might become the righteousness, the perfection, the holiness of God. Look at me for a second here. Do we realize this crossroads? Do we get this deep down inside? The holiest man on the holiest day in the holiest nation. And he's still stained and sinful and under the accusation of the accuser. We're dressed in filthy clothes, each one of us. No defense to offer. The high priest doesn't even utter a word because he can't defend himself. 
But our passage today tells us how we do overcome. Revelation 12, 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how we triumph over the accuser. We read this passage earlier. Our great accuser has been hurled down. If you're in Christ, you're outside of his eternal reach. We have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. This doesn't mean we give our testimonies a lot. It's not what this passage is saying. It means we're witnesses. We testify. And meaning that, that we cling to the fact that we have a new shirt and we testify to that fact. That we've been redeemed by Christ in Christ alone. It means like the martyrs that Rod talked about. Martyr means witnesses. We stand dressed in white, singing out, witnessing, testifying to the praises of the Lamb. I want to ask you today, have you made that garment switch? What testimony are you witnessing about? Are you witnessing, I've been given Jesus' shirt. I'm clean. Or look at all that I've done. Look at, look at the good stuff that I've done. Satan's victory as the, the accuser looks like you defending yourself. Say it again. Satan's victory as the accuser looks like you defending, trying to justify yourself. You alone in the defendant's box saying things like, I go to church. I read my Bible this week. I try to be a good person. I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as other people. I haven't committed like murder or anything like that. It's like Eric earlier when he talked about, I swear, but only sometimes. I lie, but not every time. Is that the kind of defense that you're trying to offer? That your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? Throughout Christ's ministry, we see him pleading with us, begging us to stop trying to justify ourselves. He says, you say you haven't committed adultery? If you even thought an adulterous thought, you've committed adultery in your heart. You say you haven't murdered, but if you even say an angry word, you've murdered. What he's saying is you can't be good enough. I don't care what percentage of your shirt you think is clean and what percentage you think is dirty. It's stained. Even if it just has a single small stain, which none of ours has, it's far more dirty than we even realize. Even a single stain changes its identity. It's stained. Crossroads. Stop trying to justify yourself. Stop trying to be good enough. Stop trying to work off your debt, clean your own shirt. Rest. Rest. Rest and overcome by the blood of the Lamb. When you stop witnessing or testifying about yourself and you instead cling solely to His work, then you overcome. If not, you just look like an idiot in a stained shirt trying to say that it's not or trying to say, well, it could be dirtier or it's not as bad as my neighbor's. We've all made choices, gone places, done things, thought things, said things, the kind of things that would make us embarrassed or ashamed to really think about. Because even though the world might say, well, it's not really that bad, I think deep down we know the things that we're capable of the things that we've done or thought. Only when we stop trying so hard to defend ourselves 
do we see Jesus standing to the side with a pure, sparkling, dazzling robe ready to give it to you? Like Jesus at the temptation, Satan, the accuser, is always going to try to get us to question that. He says to Jesus, if you really are God's son, and he says to us, if you really have a clean shirt on, why do you do this? Why'd you just do that? Why'd you just think this? With that, you can look directly at the accuser. And as Christians, we have the freedom to just own it. You're right, I did mess up. You're right, my sin has stained my shirt through and through far more than I even realized. But you know what, Satan? I don't wear it anymore. I wear his. I have a Savior that has exchanged lives with me, has paid my debt. I'm clean. See, Satan's greatest victory isn't getting you to sin. Satan's greatest victory is getting you to try to justify yourself. Let me say that again. Satan's greatest victory is not getting you to sin. It's getting you to justify yourself, to try to clean yourself up. I've heard it said, trusting in your good deeds to save you is like trusting a spider's web to stop a falling rock. It just can't do it. It can't protect you. Your good deeds can't save you. Crossroads. The accuser's box is empty. He's been hurled down. All it is is Christ standing there with a sparkling new robe for you. You can't clean the stains of your life. You can't work off your dirt. Stop trying. Take Christ's shirt, his life for yours. He's offering it today. Let's look quickly at verse 12 and following, and then we're done. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Fast forward a little bit, all the way to the last verse of the passage, verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman, and he went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. This is where we live. Satan has already been defeated, but the war isn't over yet. You say, does that really make sense? If he's already defeated, how's the war not over? It, it makes sense. We see it all the time. The most famous example would be from World War II. D-Day. When the Allied forces took the beach at Normandy, Every military strategist knew the war was over. There's no way that Germany could win any longer. But do you think Hitler just kind of like threw his hands up, surrendered, and rolled over? No, he threw everything he had in anger. And some of the most bloody battles took place after that fact. This is where we live. The time between D-Day and VE, Victory in Europe Day. Satan knows that he's defeated. He knows that he's already been expelled from heaven. He's been hurled to the earth, and he's furious, the passage says, because he knows that his time is short. Who is he targeting? The last verse tells us. The offspring of the woman. He's targeting you. He's targeting me. He's targeting anyone who testifies to the blood of the Lamb 
We are in our own period of 1260 days. A bloody battle that will ultimately be victorious, but it's a bloody battle. There's still death, there's still pain, there's still persecution, there's still suffering. That was true for the first century readers of Revelation. They were experiencing a ton of pain. And it's true to us, but we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. So crossroads, don't shrink back. We have a Savior who has overcome. And so will we, by his blood and the word of our testimony. Let's pray. God, what is this news? that you would die for us, that while we were still sinners, you would come and pass off your life for ours. God, that we are co-heirs with you. I pray, Lord God, that you would just have that sink deeply into our hearts, that we would stop right now, today, trying to justify ourselves, trying to shine up an already dirty shirt and a dirty life, and that we would cling to you God, that we would experience the freedom and the rest that comes from that. God, help us to battle well as there still is an accuser. There still is a great dragon prowling around this earth, destroying as much as he can. Help us to withstand the pain, to withstand the suffering, the persecution, and to not shrink back but to stand with confidence on the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Help us to be that church and a light to this nation. Jesus' precious and holy name, amen.